right, welcome to the Krug Show. Hope everybody's having a great day. It is December the 8th, 1049 in the morning on the West Coast, 149 on the East Coast. Chase Sr. in the house. We're going to talk a little Niners, a little aftermath of Niners-Eagles. Chase, good to see you. Of course, we're brought to you by Pig and a Pickle, the best barbecue in all of Northern California. Check them out. Uh, I've got the wrong brand up there, but I will get that out of there. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Niners, a little bit about the Eagles, and that matchup from last weekend. And, of course, we're brought to you by Pig and a Pickle, the best barbecue in all of Northern California. also brought to you by New York-style Italian sausage and Marin Auto Glass, as well as Underdog Fantasy and Mojo Fantasy. Niners went to Philly. They destroyed the Eagles. Chase, what did you think of it? Really impressive win. And I know that here on this show, I was leaning with Philadelphia, but I also did say that there's one team in the National Football League that was equipped to go into Philadelphia and win the game. It was the San Francisco 49ers. And that's why I picked the Niners to win the NFC Championship game last year. And also here on the show, I threw a couple of things out to look out for in that football game. If the Niners were going to be able to pass protect Brock Purdy, thought they would have had a chance to win. The Eagles hit Purdy twice on the first drive. After that, did not get to him again. I also said that going into the game, the Eagles are one of the best tackling teams in the NFL, and San Francisco was the best yards after contact and yards after catch team in the NFL. What happened? Debo Samuel ran wild. Eagles had a bad tackling day, and I thought Kyle Shanahan was just in his bag with his ability to scheme up plays and design them in a way to get the ball in the hands of his playmakers. I thought that the Niners' defensive line was really good. San Francisco was able to win in the trenches. And then lastly, I said over and over again, the Eagles linebackers are bad. And if San Francisco can win this game and target those linebackers, they can have a field day. And that's exactly what San Francisco did. They exploited that mismatch. I thought defensively they did a really good job of containing Jalen Hurts inside the tackles, not allowing him to run up the middle on the quarterback draw, but also when the pocket breaks down to take off and make plays with his legs. That's what Nick Bosa alluded to the other day. So very impressed with the way that San Francisco was able to win that game. I thought that the turning point of it, Larry, was was the Eagles on the first two drives marched right down the field and they converted multiple third down conversions. But then the Niners defense bent, it did not break, held Philadelphia to two field goals. And that changed the momentum and flipped the momentum to San Francisco's sideline. They didn't pick up a first down until the 12-minute mark of that second quarter. But after those two field goals, six consecutive drives that resulted in touchdowns. They were about as flawless as they could have been on both sides of the football and coaching after those first two drives. Yeah, Brock Purdy, 23 of 27 after his first opening with, that's 85%. Um, after his first four passes fell incomplete. So, I mean, he he was locked in. He threw for 314 yards and four touchdowns. If I said the key to the game, I, I, I really felt it was the fact that the Niners rushed Hurts better than I've seen Hurts rushed in that they didn't get out of their lanes. They stayed very disciplined. They gave him, He only had seven runs all day. His longest run was for seven yards. I mean, he gets out and rumbles for 15, 20 yards regularly. And the fact that the Eagles couldn't run the ball and Hertz couldn't get loose as a runner, I thought that was huge. And then the 49ers coverage. I mean, the, the 49er pass coverage, if you told me that the Niners were going to be glued on, uh, you know, A.G. Brown and Devontae and, and, you know, Watkins and all these guys all day, I would have said no way. Now, Brown and Devontae had good numbers, but I just felt like 
the Niner coverage, I mean, the Niners, it seemed like more the Niner coverage was bothering the Eagles offense than, than the Niners rush. The Niners got 46 pressures, but uh, which is a ton, but it seemed like Hertz had time many times. It just, he had nowhere to go. Yeah. I think he had the longest time to throw among all games this year. So the Eagles offensive line was able to pass protect, but going into that game last week, and really over the last month, we've been talking about how Charvarius Ward and Ambry Thomas have played great football. And I think the turning point for this defense has obviously been that this defensive line is starting to sack the quarterback. They have 18 sacks over the last four games. But on the back end, benching Isaiah Oliver, moving Diamadora Lenore to the slot, where I've always thought he's better equipped. He's a really good slot corner. And then moving Ambry Thomas on the outside alongside Charvarius Mooney Ward. That is a very, very good cornerback tandem. Ward now has 15 pass breakups. That's more than all cornerbacks in the NFL. And over the last couple of weeks, he's clamped down DK Metcalf, and he's done a really good job on A.J. Brown. On that first drive for Philadelphia on that third down when Hertz tried to go to Brown on the far side end zone, Ward's ability to turn around, address the ball, and have ball skills, tremendous. And Ambry Thomas has been a revelation. He's always had ability, but the issue with him has been health and playing consistently. He's been able to do that too. And then on top of what you said, Larry, this Niners rushing defense has been so good. They've been swarming. And right now, teams aren't able to move the football throwing it. They're not able to capitalize in the red zone. Niners are giving up 15 points per game, and they can't run it. So when the San Francisco team is playing so well in all phases, and when Kyle Shanahan is coaching like he's coaching right now, I told you last week going into the game, they have the makings of being the best team in the NFL. And in that game against Philadelphia, by far and away, better team, more talented team, deeper team. And they look like the best team in the National Football League. It was great to see all those Eagle fans walk out just being miserable. And it was just a, it was an awesome feeling. Um, and just, you know, watching the Niners just silence that crowd. It was just yeah. It was breathtaking. Um, I thought it was, it was. It seemed a little too easy. I mean, I, I was expecting Philly to show up and play way better than that. Uh, I, I was shocked at how easy it was. You you have the privilege of being able to talk to the miserable Eagle fans. What what was the vibe like? What what's the dialogue like the Monday in Philly after that game? And what kinds of things were they saying about it on your show? Yeah, it was very interesting because on Sunday I did a simulcast. So I was live on the 49ers report. I was live on Eagles now at the same time. And I was able to gauge the temperature of both fan bases. For San Francisco, elation, thrilled, just so impressed with the way that they were able to beat down and pummel the Eagles. Especially everything that kind of led up into the game following the NFC Championship game last year, where I said here on the show last week, like San Francisco had the right to complain. San Francisco had the right to say, man, I wish we would have had our quarterback because we feel as though we would have had an opportunity to go in there and make it to the Super Bowl and punch our ticket to the big dance with how they played in that game. This is what they were talking about. Exploiting the Eagles secondary is what Debo and Ayuk talked about all offseason. They did that. And the defense really brought it. So that was on the San Francisco sideline. And then the Philadelphia side of things, the fans really just said, we got our asses kicked. The players have said all week, we got our asses kicked. There's really no other way to put it. When you give up touchdowns 
on six consecutive drives. You don't score an offensive touchdown until the third quarter, and you get outscored after going up 6-0, 42-13. There's no other way to slice it up. San Francisco's offensive line held up really, really well on the right side, especially with Colton McKivitz after that first drive. They won at the point of attack with their offensive line and their defensive line, and they just downright dominated the Eagles. And that's what the fans said. Now, I will say this. I think Philadelphia looked a little bit slow and a little bit tired. I thought on those first two drives defensively, they were firing off the ball. And that's why San Francisco couldn't get into a groove. They played three games in 13 days on the road against Kansas City, overtime game against Buffalo. And then the Niners had that rest advantage with the mini buy playing on Thanksgiving. They look like they're fresher, more rested team. And I think that's why Philadelphia just kind of waned a little bit as the game wore on. But from the fan base, from the team, just taking accountability and giving credit where credit is due, that the San Francisco 49ers went into Philadelphia and they punched the Eagles right in between the eyes. Uh, no no question. Um, what Eagle player was getting blamed? I mean, is it Blankenship? Is it, is it um, you know, it seemed like the Eagles, t- I know Seth Joyner seemed like he was going off on the Eagles' lack of ability, of tackling ability in the secondary. Um, who, who, who got the lion's share of the blame among the players outside of crediting the Niners? Honestly, a lot of the chatter was about Brian Johnson, the offensive coordinator, because the unit has been incredibly inconsistent this year and they failed to capitalize in the red zone. I mean, if the Eagles go up 10 nothing, 14 nothing, there could have been a different game. But credit to San Francisco and their red zone defense for really just clamping down. And then a lot of the blame also going on Sean Desai. The last two games, the Eagles' defense, they forced opponents into 33 third downs, and opponents have converted on 22 of them. The Eagles are giving up 47% of third down conversions this year, so they continue to get torched. They're one of the best teams, number nine overall, at forcing teams into third down, so they're good on first and second. And then on third down, they're just paper mache right now. So a lot of the blame was going toward the coordinators as well as head coach Nick Sirianni, who got outcoached by Kyle Shanahan. As far as players getting blamed, the entire Christian defense, Ellis got cut, huh? Didn't he get cut? Say that again. Didn't Christian Ellis get cut? Christian Ellis got cut. A little bit of a surprise. You know, that was kind of the corresponding roster move after they brought in Shaq Leonard. He's been a really good special teams player. But as an off-ball linebacker, whether it was Kittle, whether it was Ayuk, whether it was Debo, Brock Purdy throwing to Christian McCaffrey on that little choice route toward the outside in which Nicholas Morrow just got burnt to a crisp, um, you know, Every player on the defensive side of the ball was getting a little bit of blame. You know, Brock Purdy threw for, I think, 314 yards, and 213 of those came after the catch. Just comes down to not making a play and not making tackles. And then I thought that Jalen Hurts had a pretty poor game. So, really, everybody just didn't have their A game for, for the Philadelphia in that game. What was your take on Big Dom DeSandro and Greenlaw? I thought it was ridiculous that that Greenlaw could get ejected from the game for what he did to this kid, this this security guy Um, to me, that was wrong. And I just, to me, the other thing roll, you know, a lot of people are noticing here that we have video footage of, of, uh, you know, Sirianni saying, you know, 57 has got to be ejected. And then him saying after the game, I'm really didn't want to see anybody ejected. It's like he politicked with the officials 
for that ejection. What did you think of that whole situation and what kind of dialogue was there in Philly about that? I've never seen anything like that before. And you think about the sequence of what happened. I thought Greenlaw kind of threw Devontae Smith down a little bit hard. Borderline definitely a penalty. Yeah. What what'd you say? He definitely should have been a penalty. Exactly. So I thought that that, that throwdown came like slightly after the whistle. And Dom DeSandro, who is like a legend in Philadelphia, is from South Philly, Italian dude. South Philadelphia is just full of Italians. And people are making mixtapes about him to a Meek Mill soundtrack because Meek Mill's from Philly. Like he's a local icon. So I think that he saw Greenlaw throw down Devontae Smith, which was a borderline after the whistle type of play. And I agree with you. I thought that he should have been penalized for that. And so he was like, oh, whoa, what's going on here? Now, it is very weird for a security guard to be involved in the game, right? And I've never seen him so close to Nick Sirianni during the game. So I'm really not sure what he was doing next to Nick Sirianni. Usually he's on the sideline, but usually he joins Sirianni after the game when he like goes to greet the coach or when he's going into the tunnel just to be a security guard there like you see with college coaches all the time. So for him to be so close to Sirianni, I'm not sure what was going on there. He just has to have better control. Like he contacted Dre Greenlaw. There's no reason for a security guard to make contact with the player. And then for Greenlaw, I know it's hard, right? He gets kind of poked by a security guard. He's like, what the hell's going on here? I think that he's got to show a little bit better restraint there and not poking him in the face right back. And I'm not sure if it was intentional to poke him in the face, but I thought that he was kind of in the wrong too with the throwdown and then with the poke, but he shouldn't have been put in that situation because the security guard shouldn't have been there. Yeah. Um, How's Philly going to react this week against Dallas? The one thing that Nick Bosa commented on, he's like, I hope Dallas copies our rush plan. The Niners feel like they rushed Hurts better than other teams. They didn't give him any run lanes, that they didn't give him any escape hatches, that they rushed as one and limited his ability to get out and run. And Bosa thinks that if Dallas does the same thing, they'll have a similar result. Um, I saw that Philly hasn't won in Dallas since 2017. So that's it's been a few years. Is Philly going to lose this game Sunday to Dallas, or, or are they going to bounce back? Yeah, what's interesting is that Philadelphia had to play San Francisco on a week and a half of rest, and they played those three games in 13 days, and now they have to play the Cowboys, who also played last Thursday in that wild game against Seattle. And Philadelphia hasn't won there in a long time. Dallas hasn't lost at AT AT&T Stadium in a really long time. Their winning streak right now is up to 14 games at Jerry World. And the line has gone up from Cowboys opening up as two-and-a-half-point favorites to now Cowboys minus three and a half. So I think a lot of money is coming in on Dallas. I think it's going to be a really difficult game. I think Philadelphia's beat up. I think they're a little bit tired. This stretch has been very, very difficult having to play on the road against Kansas City out of the bye, Buffalo in overtime, San Francisco, Dallas, and then Seattle next week. And I don't think that Philadelphia has beaten the Seahawks since 2008. So this game becomes a huge one for the Eagles, and they seem pretty confident this week that they're going to be able to go in there and win. I think that the Cowboys are a little bit fraudulent. They have one win over a winning team all year, and it came against Seattle, and when they beat the Seahawks, they dropped Seattle to 6-6. and So now Seattle is 500. Their number one in point differential this year is Dallas ahead of San Francisco, but They've had a cupcake schedule, and they've blown out a lot of opponents. So I think that this is a great matchup and a litmus test to see what the Cowboys are about. 
If the Cowboys win this game, I think that you start to look at them as a little bit of a threat for San Francisco, although I still take the Niners to win that head-to-head. If Philadelphia then wins, I think that their path toward the number one seed becomes a lot easier because after playing Seattle, they have Giants, Cardinals, Giants to round out the season, and the Cowboys have a really difficult schedule. They still have to play at Buffalo, at Miami, home against Detroit, and on the road against Washington. So this game is huge for Dallas, and I think it's bigger for Dallas because they want to prove that they can beat a legitimate opponent, and if they want to win the NFC East or have any hopes of getting that number one or number two seed, it has to start with the win over Philly on Sunday. Seth Joyner called out the DBs for their poor tackling. I just think they missed Chauncey Gardner-Johnson. I mean, you know, Chauncey Gardner-Johnson was one of the great impact players on that football team. They let him walk. They had, they had Avante Maddox. Then they, you know, they they he got hurt, and you know they've they've tried they they traded for Byard, but I mean their secondary just didn't look very good in this game at all. Um, How much do they miss C.J. Gardner-Johnson? Yeah, look, you asked me what their biggest weakness was going into this game, and I said secondary and linebacker play. Darius Slay's a little bit older, although he's still pretty good, but James Bradbury has been bad all year, and the linebacking play has been susceptible to giving up huge plays all year long as well. That's why they had to make that emergency move for Shaq Leonard. So I think that the secondary has been an issue. I think they miss CJ Gardner Johnson because of his versatility. He played safety. He played slot corner. He was a dog. He had a lot of swagger. He was everywhere. He missed a month because of a lacerated kidney, but he still finished tied for the NFL league lead in interceptions and had an opportunity to spend some time with him at the Super Bowl last year in Arizona. And you could just sense that he was a leader that the players look to him to instill confidence in others to really set the tone. And I think having those tone setters is really important. And you kind of canvas this Niners roster. There are so many future Hall of Famers, all pros, pro bowlers, tone setters, cultural changers from Eric Armstead and Nick Bosa to Fred Warner and Dre Greenlaw, who's really an enforcer. And then offensively, Debo Samuel is able to back up his trash talk last week and have what was, I think, the best regular season game of his career. And then going back to the Eagles defensively, like Howie Roseman is just never invested in the linebacker position. He doesn't believe in it. He thinks that you invest on the defensive line, which I agree with, and then he goes to corner after that. You know, Philadelphia re-signed Darius Slay on a restructured deal. They brought back James Bradbury in free agency on a pretty lucrative contract as well. And both of those players have not played well this year. They let TJ Edwards go, Larry, which I think that's the player that they're also missing. He got $12 million in guaranteed money from the Chicago Bears. He was actually the number two off-ball graded linebacker in the NFL last year, according to Pro Football Focus. That's the guy that they've missed because when you're throwing out Nicholas Morrow, you're throwing out Christian Ellis, who they released a couple of days later when you're having to sign Zach Cunningham late and Shaq Leonard and N'Kobe Dean's on IR, other teams see that. And especially a team like San Francisco, which has been surgical at targeting the intermediate area of the field, 10 to 19 yards. And then they always thrive in Kyle Shanahan's system in between the numbers and in between the hashes. And they did whatever they wanted to do. So I think they miss CJ Gardner Johnson. They miss TJ Edwards and Howie Roseman not investing in linebacker has come back to cost Philadelphia drastically. Yeah, no, Morrow got, you know, he got picked on. I mean, he gave up a ton of yards. Pro Football Focus roasted him as far as 
um, you know, his grade in this game. I mean, he gave up 150 yards after the catch. (laughs) It's pretty hard to do. I mean, it was rough. Strawberry reacts as chase. What are your thoughts on them leaving Hertz in the game at the end? I was surprised since he had been just been evaluated for a concussion. Um, yeah. What, what did you think? I mean, Hertz came back and played to the end, which probably showed leadership, but, um, at the same time, you know, if he was concussed, that's probably not a good situation. Yeah, you were talking about the running ability a little bit earlier. He's still hampered with that knee injury, and that's why teams aren't respecting the RPO. That's why Philadelphia isn't able to run as much as they've been able to run last year. At this point, a year ago, they had 200 more yards before contact as compared to this year, so the offensive line is not winning. Hurts is the team captain. He's the face of the franchise. He wants to play. He's tough. That's why he came back. He got cleared. He didn't suffer concussion. I thought it was a little bit odd that he was in so late, but I'm not going to go to the likes of um, David Carr and saying that Marcus Mariota should replace Jalen Hurts. That's just blasphemy, which he spewed on the airwaves this past week. I couldn't believe that. It's just unbelievable. I mean, going on your Skip Bayless type of carousel, like it just makes no sense. (laughs) I mean, seriously, that was bizarre. Yeah. So Marcus Mariota needs to be in there. It's just, it's amazing. Um, Okay. Niners go into a matchup now with Seattle, the team that they just beat, and they're not going to have Eric Armstead. It doesn't sound like Armstead's going to play this week and he's not going to play next week. And this is a classic trap game for the Niners. I mean, Seattle's desperate. Um, they need a win. They get Philly next week. So they're desperate to win a game to, I mean, their playoff lives are pretty much on the line here between this week and next week. And the Niners aren't going to have Eric Armstead. So how do you see Niners Seahawks in week 14? There's just no reason for San Francisco to have a trap game. There's still so much to play for. They haven't been able to lock up the NFC West yet. They have a great opportunity to still get the number one seed, to have home field advantage, go through Levi Stadium in Santa Clara. If you can avoid going to Philadelphia once again, difficult place to play, even though San Francisco dominated that football game, ideally, you want to be able to have home field advantage like you did in 2019, where San Francisco was so dominant during that playoff run. So I understand that Seattle is desperate. Seattle looked like a completely different team last Thursday against Dallas compared to how they looked the week before against San Francisco on Thanksgiving. And the only reason that the Niners are going to lose this game is if they play sloppy. During that three-game losing streak earlier this year, they turned the football over seven times in those three games. They couldn't sack the quarterback. They were missing a bunch of tackles. They did miss, I believe, 12 against Philadelphia. That can't happen once again. But I just look at how... This offense is playing with synergy right now. How this defensive line is clicking. How good Ambry Thomas and Mooney Ward have been on the outside. Teams are just struggling, and it's so arduous right now just to throw the ball and run the ball against San Francisco. And then defensively, how do you guard this team right now? I mean, Brandon Ayuk's having a career year. He continues to be criminally underrated. Debo Samuel just had three touchdowns and looked every bit of the 2021 All-Pro that he was a couple of years ago. George Kittle was really instrumental, I thought, in that first half against Philadelphia and picking up yards after the catch and making some really big plays for Brock Purdy. This offensive line has really started to play a little bit better over the last couple of weeks. And Talent-wise, San Francisco is so much better. So Seattle is going to try to muddy it up. They're kind of they're going to try to make this game really ugly. DK Metcalf went off against Dallas, and Dallas has a pretty good secondary. He had three touchdowns, but 
there's just no excuse for San Francisco to lose this game, especially if Philadelphia loses against Dallas, because that then gives you another great opportunity to potentially get that number one seed. And I hope that they have that short mindset. And I hope they understand that, look, we can do something special here and we can make our path a lot easier if we get home field advantage, which that's something still to play for. Um, who would you say is the Niners' best offensive weapon? Christian McCaffrey, what he's doing right now is Marshall Falk-like. When Marshall Falk was one of the rare non-quarterbacks to win MVP. So I'd go McCaffrey. And, you know, I think you were probably there, Larry, when Shanahan said this week that Christian McCaffrey is one of the best players that he's ever coached without the ball in his hands. And I understand that a lot of people want to see Jordan Mason. A big reason we don't see Jordan Mason is that he can't pass protect. And Christian McCaffrey is so good at pass protecting. And it's not just McCaffrey's ability to run the football. Like you look at how he can run it in between the tackles, get out to the perimeter, outside of the tackle box, his ability to make guys miss, overpower players, the getaway speed. But then the relationship now and the continuity that he's been able to develop with Brock Purdy on that choice route, he could have broke inside, he could have broke outside. And if you look at the down the sideline view of that play that's kind of circulating around Twitter today, you know, Brock Purdy threw that ball before he knew what McCaffrey was going to do, either breaking inside or breaking outside. McCaffrey turns around, catches that ball in stride, and his footwork as a wide receiver, his hands as a wide receiver, it's so special. But that's not taking anything away from Debo. Like Debo, I think the players made a good point this week, Nick Bosa, Fred Warner, and saying like, he's so unselfish. He gets paid and he's been okay with not being the guy that gets targeted all the time because he understands McCaffrey's doing his thing. Kittle's playing really well. Ayuk's been balling out. But this is the thing about San Francisco, and this is why I love them as a team. They're so multiple. They're so diverse. They're so deep. They have so many different weapons that every single game, week in, week out, they can hurt you. Like George Kittle's not slowing down. He still looks like one of the best tight ends in the NFL, whereas I think Travis Kelsey has slowed down a little bit. And Kittle's ability to block, unlike Kelsey, I think gives him, you know, an argument to be had for being the best tight end in the NFL this year. Ayuk is a route runner and a goal line to goal line threat. He's so special and he's so good at picking up yards after the catch. And again, Debo last week with the explosion, the physicality, the getaway speed, the acceleration, the ability to make guys miss in the open field. Like Philadelphia looked as though they wanted no part of them. So I think McCaffrey's their best offensive weapon, but that's not taking anything away from the other players. And uh, we didn't even talk about Brock Purdy, who just continues to play stellar football. And because he's been so efficient, because he's been so good, that's why he's the odds-on favorite uh, alongside Dak Prescott at plus 300 odds going into week 14 to win NFL MVP. Do you think he will win it? I don't think so, because I think it's that case of draftism. People aren't giving him enough credit. Now, people like you and I know, people like Richard Sherman know, people in the Bay Area know how special he's been, but it's just ridiculous that the argument is, oh, he's surrounded with so many offensive weapons. He just throws these in routes and crossers and screens and guys pick up yards after the catch. Like, if you actually do work, and you actually do research, and you actually watch the games, Brock Purdy is passing the eye test at every level. Anticipation, accuracy, touch, feel. He's been surgical at all three levels of the field, and it's not just him throwing checkdowns all the time. His accuracy, his efficiency on some of the long balls has been great. And 
you know, I did a I did a segment this week, like for Brock Purdy's case to be named MVP. If you look at Aaron Rodgers when he won MVP in 2020 and 2021, and Mahomes last year, right? Um, or is it Aaron Rodgers the, the two years that he won MVP back to back, 2020, right. 2021, and then Mahomes in 2022? Their receivers had a higher percentage of yards after the catch than Brock Purdy has this year. Right. Um, so, you know, you can throw that argument away. And then Peyton Manning um, won an MVP when, you know, he had Marvin Harrison, Reggie Wayne, good tight ends. Kurt Warner had Torrey Holt, Isaac Bruce, and Marshall Falk. Joe Montana had the luxury of throwing to Jerry Rice, and he had a Roger Craig, and Steve Young had Jerry Rice and Ricky Waters. Like, it's almost like, Good teams have good players, and it's the quarterback's job to execute, and Brock Purdy is executed this year. So who's going to win it? Oh, man. I mean, if you say Dak Prescott, I'm going to lose my lunch. Uh, Niners look, destroyed the Cowboys. Yeah, uh, Purdy was awesome that day, and Prescott threw like three picks and looked awful. He might have been the single reason they lost that game. Yeah, uh, you know. I was looking at the odds this week. I think like two is eight to one. Lamar Jackson's eight and one. If the Ravens get the number one seed in the AFC, maybe Lamar, but I don't think that his numbers compare to what Purdy's been able to do. Like, I also think you have to factor in the conversation. Purdy in the regular season now is 14 and three, and he's won two playoff games, the two playoff games that he started and finished. So I think that what he's doing this year and the body of work going back to last year, how he's been able to maintain this level of consistency should make him more of an, of an MVP threat. Um, you can throw Jalen Hurts into that conversation, but now Brock Purdy has won the head-to-head. -head. I just think because Purdy's Mr. Irrelevant and because he has all these other weapons, he's not going to get MVP, but I made the argument this week that people are sleeping on the kid right now. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, you're, 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 you know, number one in completion percentage, number one in yards per attempt. QBR and QB rating, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean to me, those right there are, are major, major stats. And it's like, you know what? Every quarterback's got weapons. Every, every good, every good quarterback's got weapons. I mean, you know, Mahomes had uh, Kelsey, Tyreek Hill. You know, I mean, you look at Aaron Rodgers, he had Devontae Adams. I mean, it's like, you're going to have good players around you if you're going to win this award. I mean, it's a team sport. I just think that, it, man, if you're penalizing a guy based on his draft position multiple years after, it's like, hey, I think we got to get get beyond that. Um, yep. I'm eager to see where Brock will will fit in this thing. He doesn't. The interesting thing is he doesn't care the slightest. He no. really doesn't. He does. He's like he's all about the W. This yep. guy wants to win the Super Bowl, and that's his only goal. And I get the sense when we talk to him that MVP, it's like, I mean, it would be nice, but I mean, it's hardly like on his, on his list of like, Oh, gotta have it. I mean, this guy's a team first kind of a guy. Do you think he earned some respect in Philadelphia for Sunday's performance? Yeah, I think so. A lot of the word that I was getting from just Eagles fans and some of my buddies, Brock Purdy's not going to come into Philadelphia to right. win this game. They looked at his outfit. They said, this cornball isn't coming into Philadelphia <laughs> right, and winning right. this game. Look, he cooked him on third downs. He cooked him against the Blitz. I think he was 10 of 11 when Sean Desai sent five guys or more. 
He helped lead six consecutive touchdown drives. I know that Debo Samuel brought a couple of balls to the crib in which it was an easy throw for Purdy and Debo got some blocks downfield to make people miss and pick up yards after the catch. But how about that choice route, the aforementioned play to Christian McCaffrey? How about throwing to George Kittle? How about the accuracy to Brandon Ayuk? I mean, he went in there after not starting the game well when San Francisco went three and out, three and out, he got hurt twice or hit twice, excuse me, on that uh, first drive. And the Niners did not pick up a first down until the 12 minute mark. Like Kyle Shanahan even said it after the game. He said, man, what a win. And I'm so proud of you guys. And my favorite part was the first quarter because they couldn't do anything in the first quarter. Philadelphia's offense had the ball for the majority of that first quarter. They went right down the field on the first two drives. San Francisco's defense, credit to them for forcing two field goals. And Brock Purdy, kind of did what I wanted to see him do. Faced some adversity, responded to it, and after that, thought he was pretty much flawless. So, you know, game respects game, and how do you not respect Purdy if you're a detractor for going into Philadelphia and playing as well as he did, especially against the Blitz, against that defensive line, and displaying the skill set that he's displayed to us now for the last two years. Perfect passer rating against the blitz. I mean, that, you know, how many young quarterbacks can you say, yeah, you know, you really don't want to blitz them? I mean, how many 23 year old second year quarterbacks could you, in the history of watching football, could you say, yeah, you know what, blitzing him's a bad idea? I yep. mean, that, that, he's, this kid's very mentally um, up on it. And, you know, I was asking him yesterday about the game plan. And he's like, you know, I don't look, I said, do you, do you consult with Shanahan? on Monday or Tuesday, uh, or do you, are you surprised by it when they go to install it on, on Wednesday and Thursday? And he said, you know, I, I, I do touch base with Kyle on certain things on Mondays and Tuesdays, but I, you know, I wait until Wednesday to really see their game plan. Uh, but the Niners got it, have got it all going right now. It's, you know, between the weapons and Purdy and the defense and the, the coverage, the thing that to me was really surprising. If you said, what was the one surprise? I was surprised that the 49ers got nine quarterback hits on Hertz and three sacks against this offensive line. I was surprised that the 49er defensive line didn't just stand up against this Eagle offensive line. They really owned the day. Um, that was not what happened in the NFC championship game. How surprised were you that the Eagles offensive line lost at the line of scrimmage? Yeah, I thought that was a really big turning point of the game. And, you know, Philadelphia's offensive line last year was absolutely tremendous, both in pass protection and in run protection as well. But really along the line of scrimmage, you know, Philadelphia's offensive line lost. And I think that we can kind of point back to the acquisition of Randy Gregory, the acquisition of Chase Young, the defensive tackle play for San Francisco. I know Nick Bosa didn't have any sacks and, you know, Lane Johnson did a really good job on him. But when you compile all that talent along that defensive line, it's really hard to double team anybody on that Niners front. And I think that San Francisco came into that game very motivated because they did get pushed around in the NFC championship game last year. But it's not just those players that I mentioned that ended up showing up. And it's not just the star power that's making this defensive line click right now. Javon Kinlaw, two sacks. Kalia Davis, 
a sack late in the game. We continue to sleep on Eric Armstead. I know that he's injured and banged up right now, but what he's been able to do, he has five sacks this year, and he's been a really good player when you look at the pro football focus numbers. So I was very impressed with San Francisco's ability to get after Jalen Hurts and really win against that offensive line for Philadelphia. Another thing, though, and I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, the Niners' defensive line and their overall defense in stopping the run has been massive over the last four games, especially in that game against Philadelphia. The Eagles had eight first and 10 runs. They gained 12 total yards. So when you're doing that, the opposition is playing behind the sticks and it makes second and third down a lot harder. And San Francisco's done such a good job at forcing teams to play behind the sticks. And then they're able to pin their ears back and they can run that bare front with five guys that can call an occasional blitz. They can let Dre Greenlaw and Fred Warner kind of feast a little bit, get aggressive, and then let the corners on the outside eat. And that's what they've been able to do. So this is really just a cohesive unit right now defensively. It starts with the defensive line, but at the second level with the linebacking core and at the third level with that secondary, everybody right now is playing so well. And I hope that they're going to be able to continue to do that and maintain that. And they don't have that dip like they did last year. And hopefully they going to playoffs playing like this because I don't think there's a team in the NFL that can beat them when there's this version of the San Francisco 49ers offensively and defensively playing up to their level of capability. Chase Sr. in the house. It's a Friday in our normal spot here, having a great live stream. Appreciate all you guys. Of course, we're brought to you by New York style Italian sausage, Marin Auto Glass, Underdog Fantasy, Mojo Fantasy, and our good friends at New York style Italian sausage. And don't forget about Pig and a Pickle. Pig and a Pickle, the best barbecue in all of Northern California. I got two mentions there for uh, New York style, and I forgot Pig and a Pickle. Um, Chase, the tush push. Goodell has come out and has basically said that, you know, that he doesn't want to see the tush push. And it sounds like they're going to try to eradicate it. Um, And, you know, there's it's what do you think? I mean, there's a lot of people that I understand why I saw NFL's uh, vice president. Jeff Miller says the commissioner has not taken a position for or against the tush push. But there will certainly be more conversation on it at the league meetings next week among the owners. Um, he says, again, no matter what, no changes to the rules in this 2023 season. What do you think this what's behind this? You know, he makes it seem like there's no nothing decided here. It got kind of thrown around last week that that Goodell's in favor of removing it from the game. It's not a great play for television. It's probably not a great game for officiating, and it's not a great game if you're trying to protect quarterbacks from from concussions and hits to the head. Is that you think behind uh, uh, you know behind Goodell if he if he indeed doesn't like it, or do you think he may fear that some team could get good enough at it that you may start to see it more and more and more, and he doesn't think it's a very um, well, it definitely doesn't display the athleticism that the league, I'm sure, loves to see. Yeah, there's been a lot of conflicting reports about this. Diana Rossini had the report first that she had heard that Roger Goodell was against it. And then somebody from the league office actually came out the other day and said that is not true, that Roger Goodell isn't against the brotherly shove, the tush push, whatever you want to call it. You know, I look at this from a couple of different vantage points. I think that this is unique for the Philadelphia Eagles. I've seen a lot of other teams run this. 
They can't get the push with the offensive line. They can't get the leverage with the offensive line. And the quarterback isn't able to churn his feet and move forward like Jalen Hurts is able to do. I think that this play is unique to Philadelphia because their offensive line has mastered it. They're so good at it. And they're able to really just perfect. And I think this takes a lot of skill. The snap count, the leverage, the strength. And then there aren't a lot of other quarterbacks out there like Jalen Hurts who can squat 600 pounds. So there have been so many teams out there who have tried this. They can't run it successfully like Philadelphia. And it's not just that the Eagles pick it up all the time. They're able to pick up two to three yards. So I'm actually for it. Um, I think that NFL football is all about trying to find an edge on the opponent. And if you're a defense, try to find a way to stop something that another team is mastering. What Philadelphia has done is really mastered this type of play, and they've leaned on their personnel, which is unique to their football team, for this play to be so successful. And I think from a football standpoint, you know, the Eagles are winning at the point of attack. They're able to get that leverage. They're able to get that push. And other teams aren't able to stop it. And when I see other teams try to run it and they just can't run it successfully, I'm like, look, why take it out of the NFL if just Philadelphia has been able to stop, uh, been able to to run it pretty flawlessly? Um, You know, I did say on the show last week with you, Larry, like if there's one team equipped to stop it, it is San Francisco. And I know that the Eagles ended up scoring a touchdown to kind of make the game somewhat close after the Dre Greenlaw, Dom DeSandro situation. But San Francisco on the play before that did stop Jalen. Hurts. So that was pretty impressive. Um, you know, is it the most like sexy play, so to speak? No, it's not. But NFL football is rugged. NFL football is tough. And sometimes I love to see the skill of offensive linemen. And I think that this requires a lot of skill. They have to perfect the snap count. They have to perfect the jump off of the line of scrimmage after the snap. That leverage thing is really important. And Jalen Hurts being able to squat 600 pounds, he's a very unique player because of that. And I think that's why this play is successful. So I don't want to see it stop because not a lot of other teams are running it. Uh, Trent Williams took a shot at the Eagles fans um, (laughs) after the game. He said, You know, that's one thing I vividly remember from my years in Washington is that the crowd, although they are loud and they are hostile, one thing about it is they do turn on the team pretty quick. Yeah. Um, The Eagles got booed off the field in the first half. Is that just standard operating procedure there? I mean, this team was, this team's one of the best teams in football. They were in the Super Bowl last year. The Niners are a tremendous team. Uh, It was 14 6, I believe, at halftime. They got booed off the field by their home fans. I mean, is that was that something you expected? Yeah, no, it happens pretty frequently. Uh, being from there, you know, the fans will let their voices be heard. Larry, I know you're a big baseball guy. I fell in love with sports because of baseball. And in the playoffs, the Philadelphia Phillies had the best home field advantage in all of baseball. Citizens Bank Park was a spectacle, and it became a raucous environment where other teams feared playing there throughout this postseason until... The Philadelphia Phillies struggled in Arizona, and then they came back to Citizens Bank Park with the series tied, and they ended up losing both games at home. And when everything is moving in a momentous way, Philadelphia fans get loud, and it's a really tough atmosphere to play in. When the game gets close and the fans sense a little bit of a choke job, everybody clenches up and it gets really silent. And I think the edge actually goes to the opponent. And the Arizona Diamondbacks were able to feed off that negative energy and that silence. 
And I think that the San Francisco 49ers went in there. And let's be real. Like, again, last week I said here on the show, like if there's one team that is equipped to go into Philadelphia and win, it's the San Francisco 49ers. This team is extremely well coached. They have so much talent on both sides of the ball. That's why I took San Francisco to win the NFC Championship game last year. I didn't worry about their mental confidence or them being mentally fickle going on the road because they have dog after dog after dog on this roster. They were extremely confident going into this game. I think it was pretty cool how they didn't even talk with one another and they still showed up wearing black because they wanted that to be the Eagles funeral. And look, you know, the crowd was into it when the Eagles were able to take that six, nothing lead, but then San Francisco scores on that Brandon Ayuk touchdown. And then they score for five consecutive drives after that. And Philadelphia fans are like, man, this sucks. This team's playing like garbage. Yeah, we're going to boo them off the field. It happens a lot. It happens a lot in the Northeast. The Yankees get booed. The Patriots get booed. The Giants get booed. The Cowboys got booed off the field against the Seattle Seahawks last Thursday. So it just kind of happens sometimes. Um, and I wasn't surprised at all. It is kind of operating uh, standard operating procedure. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. How about Zach Ertz? You know, is Goddard coming back this week against Dallas? And yeah. are the Eagles in the mix for Ertz? Because the Niners lost Dwelly to a high ankle sprain. They sh- Initially, Kyle Shanahan said, no, I just don't see it. I don't see Ertz being in the cards for us. Uh, but that John Lynch is kicking tires. Then Dwelly goes down with the high ankle sprain. Uh, which probably going to be a month or so. And now suddenly it looks like the Niners do have interest in Zach Ertz. And then it came out that Ertz is going to wait a week or so before he makes his decision. You know, he went to Stanford. He's from Monta, went to Monta Vista High School in Danville, which is right here, uh, eastern East Bay suburb of uh, San Francisco. W- what's your best guess? I mean, he's he passed through waivers, so anybody can sign him. It's really up to him. He says he wants to win a Super Bowl. Um, is he going to Philly? Is he going to Baltimore? Is he coming to the Niners, the Chiefs, Buffalo? Where do you think Ertz winds up? I think the Eagles make the least sense because they don't run a lot of two tight end sets where tight ends are used as pass catchers. And he would be behind Dallas Goddard, A.J. Brown, Devontae Smith, DeAndre Swift, and then Jalen Hurts as a threat to run the football. I look at San Francisco. I've been asking and hoping that Kyle Shanahan runs more two tight end sets in which George Kittle and another tight end are a threat to catch the ball because when Kittle and a Dwelly or a Warner on the field or last year, Tyler Croft, other teams aren't taking those tight ends seriously to be a legitimate weapon. And Zach Ertz could really just be like a slot wide receiver, whereas Kittle can cause a lot of confusion for the defense. Is he going to be used as a blocker? Is he going to be used as a pass catcher? Then we have to worry about McCaffrey, Debo, and Ayuk. And then you think about the uh, hometown ties of him being from Danville, going to Monta Vista and Stanford as well as where he played his college ball. And his wife, uh, Julie Ertz, is also from Northern California as well. So the only reason the Eagles make sense is because he started his career there, was drafted in the second round out of Stanford in 2013 by Chip Kelly, Niners legend, just kidding. Um, and he's 10 yards behind Harold Carmichael for tying the franchise record for the most receptions in franchise history. The only reason he goes there is because of the emotional ties. San Francisco makes sense because he's from there. They can maybe use him a little bit, but if I'm Zach Ertz, look, I'm 33 years old. I want to latch on with the Super Bowl contender. I'm going to Baltimore because Mark Andrews is down. And in that Ravens offense, they utilize tight ends a lot. And he can have a lot of success there. I think Lamar Jackson has the most weapons that he's had in his NFL career up to this point. And I think because of that, the Baltimore Ravens have the most 
versatile offense that they've had under Lamar where they aren't just solely reliant on him having to make a play. And then you look at the Kansas City Chiefs. That offense has been bad all year. And I know a lot of you are saying, well, you have Travis Kelsey. Their wide receivers are atrocious. Like they do not have a number one wide receiver. They're using Justin Watson a lot. So if you put Ertz and Kelsey on the field, and then you have Kadarius Tony and Sky Moore, uh, Rasheed Rice as kind of gadget guys, I think it helps out Patrick Mahomes a little bit. And uh, Ertz would go to an offense where Andy Reid has always been. Uh, a big advocate of using tight ends. So I think Kansas City and Baltimore make the most sense for him trying to go to a team that can win a Super Bowl, but also having an opportunity to contribute a lot. Yeah, I mean, you know, Lynch has said, that, hey, you know, the Niners are kicking tires. They're taking a look. He was noncommittal whether, of, over whether or not they'll land Ertz, but it definitely sounds like they're interested. The nine, Niners did add a veteran with a couple Super Bowl rings this week, and that's Logan Ryan. Um, who was played for Tampa last year, played against Brock Purdy and Purdy's first career start against uh, the Bucks and Tom Brady. And obviously the Niners lost Talano Hafanga and George Odom to injuries. Hafanga suffered a torn ending, a season ending torn ACL. Odom uh, sustained a torn bicep. He's probably done for the year, though he says he may come back. Ryan, of course, played with Tampa in 2022, played with the New York Giants. Uh, he played cornerback in his first seven seasons and then transitioned to safety in 2020. What do you what do you make of Logan Ryan? Is this um, another guy that's standing between Isaiah Oliver and playing time? Um, is this a statement that they don't want Oliver to see the field? Is it just about having some veteran depth? What do you think of the addition of Logan Ryan? Yeah, I think the addition of Logan Ryan is they don't want to have Isaiah Oliver as the number one backup safety behind Jair Brown at Deshaun Gibson. He would also have to play out of position because he's more of a slot nickel corner. I think San Francisco wanted to bring in a veteran who's won two Super Bowls, played in a lot of big games. He's also a really, really good tackler and has been throughout his career. And then you look at some of the defenses that he's played under and he has been coached by some really good defensive minds, and he's a smart football player. Bill Belichick, Mike Vrabel, um, you know, Todd Bowles. I think, you know, they wanted a little bit more insurance after Jair Brown at Deshaun Gibson when Hufanga went down. I talked about Logan Ryan as probably being the best and most notable name left on that safety market. I also think that San Francisco can use him in a versatility way. Um, you know, he came up at a Rutgers and Bill Belichick loves Rutgers players because they're smart and you have to be very smart to go uh, to a school like Rutgers. But he started playing corner slot nickel corner and had a lot of success there with New England. And then he started to play a little bit of safety. But I think San Francisco looks at him as a veteran, a lot of playoff experience, very smart player. I think that he played pretty solid football last year, but also he could play a little bit of safety. And he can play a little bit in the slot as well. D'Amador Lenore were to go down. Who do you have more trust in? Logan Ryan or a player like Isaiah Oliver, who before he got benched, gave up a completion rate of 100% and was the second lowest graded corner in the NFL. I'd still rather go with Logan Ryan over Isaiah Oliver. So I think all of those factors factored into San Francisco signing Logan Ryan to a deal. He worked out on... Uh, what Tuesday and they sign him on Tuesday. So uh, I think that they were in pretty, pr they were pretty impressed with what he was able to display. 
couple last supers before we jet jet uh robert whitaker says really like having chase on the show when we played the cowboys in philly he really knows the teams he covers really well niner fans took over the eagles chat sports room after the big win is that is that true that is true yeah the faithful was showing out they were loud and it was awesome thank you robert appreciate that man how much do you think the lenore hit bothered uh eagle fans i mean that was just a crunching it's a great hit. hit I mean, it's just an unbelievable hit on Swift. Great hit, and credit to Lenore. That was a textbook clean hit in today's NFL. And when you lay out a player like that, almost always there's a flag, right, just because of the impact and the boom. But shoulder right to the chest area on a player coming across the middle, I thought that was San Francisco kind of dotting the exclamation point to the dominant performance that they put forward in Philly. It was yeah, awesome that- hit. It was an amazing hit, and yeah. uh, Lenore has become much more physical uh, this year than um, you know than we've seen. Yeah, really. I mean, he he's just been incredible. In fact, for those who don't remember that hit, we'll we'll let I'll I'll share the screen here, and you guys can see it one more time. It was an amazing, an amazing hit by Lenore. Uh, here it is. There we go. Uh, that's the. That's the sideline wide. Here's the end zone. Just little, bone crunching. A little swift out of the backfield, comes around, right, crosses the quarterback's face, hits him in the second window. Boom. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it was just, and then he did a little dance on the side. Here's the sideline. Dislodged the football, too. Dislodged the football. So that incomplete pass. But, you know, the, I, I feel for NFL defenders these days because the target area is just ridiculously so small. small. You can't hit a guy in the head. You can't hit a guy in the legs. You don't want to go low. You don't want to end his career. You don't want to go high. You don't want to hit him in the head. You know, it's like it's we're making these defensive players almost like gymnasts or something. It's like it's it's almost like it's become like the Major League Baseball strike zone. You know, it's like the knee and above up to the chest area. That's really it. Uh, Daza says, yes, Brock Purdy should be in the MVP conversation, but is he even the MVP of the 49ers or is it CMC? Also look at the drop off in offense when Trent went out. Um, yeah. Would you say Brock's is the, is Brock the Niner MVP or would you give your vote to CMC? Man, you know, you asked me about the MVP earlier. The conversation between Tyree Kill and Christian McCaffrey as non-quarterbacks to win MVP, I think is as interesting as it's been for a non-quarterback in quite some time. I might go McCaffrey, but at the same time, like quarterback's the most important position. And I think that you can win without running back. San Francisco's been able to do that. Um, you know what? Christian McCaffrey, I think I saw a stat last week, is the first 1,000-yard back under Kyle Shanahan since 2017. So he's been able to win a lot without McCaffrey, but pass protection, pass catching, running the football, he is just so uniquely one of one. Um, Two last ones here. We've got, that was Daza. This is, I'm old Greg. If not Brock Purdy um, or CMC, give it to Hill. Tyreek Hill. Oh, Tyreek, yeah. Yeah. Tyreek's been amazing. Uh, And then Kevin drops this one. Kevin W. He says, did you see the NFL's official NFL Twitter account posting the video of you asking Brock the question of being the weak link? Did you see that? They turned it into a TikTok. Oh, really? That's awesome. You asked that question, you said? I asked the question, um, uh, you know, going into last week. And basically what happened was I had uh, my good friend Jody Mack, 
who's, you know, you know, Jody Mack. Longtime Philadelphia radio legend. Yeah. I mean, he's been on IP. He's been on uh, FAN in New York. He's, he's been, he's CBS sports radio. And I've Jody and I go way back and we had him on, on the Tuesday leading into the Philly game. And I said, Jody, what's the vibe? You know, it's like, what's the vibe? What are people talking about out there? And he's like, well, Krug, the number one thing is the Philly fans don't believe that Brock Purdy is coming into our house and going to beat us. And then that it's a lot of the calls, a lot of the negativity or a lot of the pushback that he gets on the Niners, uh, you know, having success in this game is Brock Purdy isn't going to be able to win here kind of a thing. So maybe there was some disrespect for Brock. Well, I went to the presser and I figured, well, what the heck? Why not? I'm not, it's not my typical style to ask that kind of question, but I said, Brock, based on the people that I've talked to, um, they kind of make you sound like you're the weak link. How does that sit with you? Blah, blah, blah. I knew it would be, you know, and some of my fan, some of my fans are like, dude, Krug, that was beneath you. You never, you know, and it's like, I wasn't trying, you know, I wasn't really trying to stir it up, but I just, I figured, you know what? Um, this is a guy who's told me many times I play with a chip on my shoulder. If I can add to that chip in a big game week, why not? Hell so yeah. I, so I threw that out to him and he's like, well, I don't even know what to say to that. I'm not really sure what to say and this and that, but he took note of it. And then he came out and he was sharp and he played great. So yeah, the NFL turned that into a TikTok this morning with Purdy getting the final say some Very highlights, cool. some quotes from Kevin Burkhart, you know, so on and so forth. So See, look I love how he TikTok. carries himself. Like he's cool, calm and collected. That's what you look for in a quarterback. And then in the game, he kind of carries that same type of, attitude and demeanor and he never seems to get rattled never seems as though he's in over his skis you ask that question he responds like that grant Cohn yesterday asked about the backwards hat colin cowherd bit and purdy's like yeah i don't know i'm just here to win football games it's like that's what i want from a quarterback right there (laughs) i've got steven saunders good job krug your your (laughs) job is to is to get these guys fired up uh, you're the big dom of SF. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, by the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but all of the 49ers that I saw yesterday in front of the cameras, hat backwards. Oh, really? That's funny. Kittle, hat backwards. McCaffrey, hat backwards. That's uh, awesome. I think that was their way of kind of nudging the cowards of the world into, you know what? Our guy's just fine with whatever way he wears his cap. Um, okay, one last one on the Eagles. The one thing that really surprised me, was that Jalen Carter, who when I watched the All-22 of, let's say, the previous five or six games of the Eagles, this guy was just awesome. And I kind of think that in some ways, Jalen Carter is the best. Now, I, I, you know, I know there's Chris Jones and there's Aaron Donald and there's guys. Uh, there's guys all over the league. But Jalen Carter when he's really on his game and playing the best can do some things that nobody really else does. I think he's super special. If there was one thing that surprised me in this game is that the Niners with Brendel banks, Burford kind of a, you know, I mean, I like banks a lot. The other two guys are just okay. They, I don't remember seeing or hearing Jalen hurt Jalen Carter making a big impact to me. That was my big surprise in that game was that, where was Jalen Carter? Uh, what did you think when you watched Carter? Because he's an awesome talent, but he wasn't big last week for sure. No, yeah, the Niners really shut him down. And in the lead up to this game, 
you know, that was one of the worries for me for San Francisco, just because, you know, the whole Feliciano Burford combination at right guard, Jake Brendel's a little bit of a smaller center. Aaron Banks, I have confidence in him. I think the last two years he's played at like a borderline Pro Bowl level. But you look at that Eagles defensive line, and just from a physicality size standpoint, you would have thought maybe they'd have the advantage with Jalen Carter. Jordan Davis is 6'6", 340. Fletcher Cox gave it a go. But they were really neutralized, and they weren't able to dominate the game on the interior of their defensive line like they've been able to do all throughout this year. I'm not sure if there's a little bit of a rookie wall going on because Carter hasn't really performed all that well the last couple of weeks. But you think about the college slate, right? They play 12, 13 games. We're at about that point for the NFL season. And for rookies, I do think that it's a little bit difficult to maintain that level of play at a physical position for 17 regular season games, as well as in the playoffs, because your body just simply is not used to that. I wonder if that's catching up to Jalen Carter a little bit, but I'm going to give credit where credit is due because this Niners offensive line as a whole played really well. Um, you know, for those of you just tuning in, I, I threw this number out there a little while ago, but Brock Purdy was hit twice on the first drive. After that, he was not hit again. Now, I think Kyle Shanahan did a good job of adjusting, getting the ball out of his hands a little bit quicker. But when you had Colton McKivitz lining up against Hassan Reddick and Josh Wett held in check, and then those aforementioned offensive tackles, like this Niners offensive line needed to come to play, and they did come to play. Dude, I'm loving our Friday streams, man. The power hour, we pre we really appreciate you stopping by. Your 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 content is awesome. It's been really cool to wrap with you every Friday. Uh, hopefully, we're bringing something to the table on your front. You bring tremendous stuff to the table on our front. Have a great weekend, my friend. We'll talk to you next week. And and um, I, you know, I'm really enjoying the streams on Friday. I know the fans are as well. I appreciate you. Me as well. Yeah, I've gotten some really great feedback, so I appreciate everybody for tuning in and you giving me this platform too. Sometimes it's good to like not be in that host chair and then you can just chop it up and have like a, you know, just a, a conversation about football. So I think we've been able to do that and hopefully the people uh, agree with that as well. What do you got cooking on chat the rest of the day? Yeah, so um, I, I made a deal earlier this week on one of our live shows. I said, if we get $500 in Super Chats on Tuesday, I'm going to run 13 miles for number 13 Brock Purdy because he's been balling out. Okay. So I actually ran a half marathon this morning, oh, and I got you. done right before I hopped on with you. So I kind of documented that, having some fun with it. I'm going to put that on the channel at some point over the next couple of days. Today, going to look at the playoff picture. I did a mailbag this week, so I'm going to release that and then continue to get people prepped for Niner Seattle. So a bunch of different content. You know, it's so funny. We're so alike. I actually told my audience, you know, for Brock Purdy playing so well, I'm going to eat 13 Krispy Kreme donuts. There you go. Uh, before <laughs> before their next game, and I've got 12 left to go. Hey, brother, <laughs> get, go. good to see you. Have a great day, man. You too. Have a good weekend. Appreciate you. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks to Pig and a Pickle, New Peace. York style Italian sausage, um, Marin Auto Glass, Underdog Fantasy. And Mojo Fantasy for Chase Sr. I'm Larry Kruger, and we are out. Yeah, never met a man I've been scared of. Careful, you won't get exactly what you asked for.